Hello and welcome to the Startup Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Kayleen Langford, founder of Startup Creative, author of How to Start a Side Hustle and resident business coach, serving you straight up business advice to help you start, grow and scale the business of your dreams. Startup Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Kayleen Langford. And on today's episode, I have an incredible guest. Her name is Hannah, and she is the recent author of Rainbow History Class, which is an incredible book that uh, that documents the, the queer history around the world. Um, and we dive into some pretty cool topics about who records history, who tells history, um, and how that impacts society and, and how we perceive each other and um, but yeah, Hannah built her, started her business or, you know, the idea for this book has a TikTok channel. So she's a bit of an expert in that space and shares lots of tips as to how to go about TikTok and building an audience, um, as well as diving into, yeah, incredible history of the queer community and then obviously putting that into book form um, and writing a book and and pitching a book and negotiating that as well. So lots of incredible topics covered. I really geeked out on this one and lots of awesome insights and tips um, on how to, yeah, get clear on your idea and your niche and, yeah, keep taking it out to the world in lots of different formats. So if you're an aspiring author or an expert on a on a niche topic um, or want to build a TikTok channel, Hannah is your gal. Um, great chat, lots of amazing insights. I could have spoken to her for days on these topics. So enjoy the conversation and look forward to hearing what you think. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah. Congratulations on your new book, Rainbow History Class. Um, and lovely to finally have you here. Happy Pride or Post Pride. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, an absolute pleasure. Love your work and love flicking through your book. I was actually on a panel earlier this week about <clears throat> on it for International Women's Day, um, but it was a lesbian and non-binary event and we dove into a lot of these topics around, you know, where did the word lesbian come from and, and how did it, you know, get to a point where it was, you know, a, a negative connotation for a while there and anyway lots of you've you've written a whole book on it but do you want to maybe you give us the intro um tell us what you do who are you and about yourself and your book okay amazing all right so my name is Hannah my pronouns are she her I am well I live and work in Nam Melbourne and Rainbow History Class is a project that um I started back in 2021 on TikTok um, and it is now um, I co-create it with Rudy Jean Rigg. Um, so I do all the research and the writing and then Rudy Jean Rigg, if you have seen us on um, social media, you'll probably have seen their face. Um, so we create Rainbow History Class and I guess a year and a half ago, I really felt driven to turn it into a book. <laughs> um, and so over the last um, just under two years, I've been working with Heidi Grant to do that and it is now out. So the book is designed to be a bit of a crash course, kind of a journey through queer and 
<laughs> a journey through queer and trans history, starting around the time of the first stone building and kind of winding its way up um, to the era of Tumblr and TikTok. Oh, I love it. It's amazing. It's And it's for those at home, it's a hardcover. It's got lots of fluoro. There's some purple, beautiful stories, fonts, um, easy to follow. I feel like it's one of those ones that you want to leave on your coffee table and um, just, yeah, like push the queer agenda <laughs> for anyone who walks that. in. But also that you also just want to pick up and read and like add to your knowledge, you know, and, and start conversations with it as well. So it's beautiful. Um, hey, so I'm interested. I love that it's gone from TikTok to book rather than like book to TikTok. How <laughs> yes. The times have changed. Um, but what drew you to being an educator in this space? Like it feels very much like, you know, a textbook and this documenting of history that, you know, and I think you mentioned this in the book as well as a lot of it has been, um, you know, hidden or destroyed um or you know I, I like the it almost like disguised in people's stories as well so what made you want to I guess pull all of this together well I think um I had a really I hated school right I had a really terrible time at school I both academically you know and socially you know I just I found that there wasn't a whole lot in, you know, at least, um, you know, learning history at school that really spoke to me or my interests at all. And I think at that time I was, um, you know, discovering my identity and there was just kind of nothing um, that I was exposed to that did any anything to make me feel less alone or seen or that what I was going through was somehow valid. It was, you know, queerness was very treated as a um, inappropriate or kind of dirty secret um, at my high school. And so there was just a lot of shame, I think, that if I had perhaps had, you know, exposure to the stories or even just knowledge about people that have existed through time that uh, I just kind of like me, I would have come out much sooner and that process would have been more joyful, I think. Um, and so that's kind of what really stuck in my mind. And then the beauty of using TikTok was about making it really accessible. So there is, there is, you know, queer and trans history that is being researched and documented, but often it's kind of gatekept by academia. Um, and of course, not everybody has the interest or the access or the ability to kind of pursue um, an education in, I don't know, like gender studies or, you know, one of those fields. And so what TikTok allowed us to do was kind of tell these stories, not in a um, one way kind of we're teaching you like your high school history teacher, but more like a, a detention or like a secret club where we were kind of learning and sharing um, with different people as we went and kind of hearing from people on the internet as well. So that's kind of created just this really nice space and it sort of does feel a bit covert and a bit kind of anti-establishment, mm -hmm. um, particularly with what's going on in many places in the world at the moment, um, just learning and talking about these things, which we're often told that we shouldn't be. 
Yeah. I mean, it's the open source data, right? And I think it's, I love the digesting of it. I mean, I was on a panel during Pride um, for the Queer Film Writers Festival, the Queer Writers uh, Film Festival. And one of the film, the film that I hosted the panel um, for was In Her Words, and it was um, the history of lesbian writers um, for the last 100 years. And a lot of them were under pseudo names, you know, published under pseudo names. People were told, you know, there was books that had alluded to a same-sex relationship in a couple and not even a couple, like a crush. And, you know, people were uh, burning the books, like literally burning them and wanting to um, get them out of schools and things like that, which, you know, still happening today. But it's wild to think that something that, you know, you look so far back into before binaries and, you know, probably white colonization, you know, gender and fluidity and sexuality was really widely accepted and normal in a lot of societies. Yeah. Absolutely. And kind of our modern constructs of gender and sexuality are really new in the scheme of things. Big time. Um. And so tell me about taking it on to, oh, that's actually what I was going to ask. How hard has it been to find the information? Because I think to that point of it being, you know, the modern context of what we think gender and sexuality is or should be, I was, when I was researching this recently, you know, there's people who are like, oh, yeah, the commentary and a lot of the commentary that you find I think is also you know, could be also bias, you know, it's like you almost have to, when I read things and I'm trying to interpret something and go, well, you know, what was that, this, you know, relationship status or the environment in which that person was living or or could have been, you know, um, existing or expressing themselves. But how do the commentary on it can be gatekept too, you know, so it's like you almost have to question the commentary as well you know, the doc- what documentary. So how do you get, how do you get to the truth of this stuff or how hard was that to find? I think um, it was hard, but I'm also lucky that I was aware of those issues um, and where it would be tricky. So you're exactly right. I mean, you know, the biggest thing, which is kind of mind-blowing and also just so obvious, but ancient Greece and ancient Rome – they were so long ago that many of the like historians who documented kind of ancient Greece uh, also themselves lived in ancient Greece just later. Mm. And so when we look at um, these kind of assumed truths about these kind of really, really archaic times, um, we're like, okay, well, that's what life was like back then. But the person who's writing it, kind of only lived like 300 years later. So, you know, what kind of lens are they putting onto the stories that they tell? And as you sort of start looking, you start to realise that so often we just think people in the past had no sense of humour, but there were trolls back then (laughs) like there are now. So there's so many things, particularly around figures like Sappho, that... um, you sort of look through these documents that are always assumed as sort of fact and you sort of start realising that, you know, I actually think that that was somebody was trolling or somebody was making a joke about that. Um, 
And then, of course, different people. Wait, can you break that open? Because this is the exact story I was I was researching about Sappho from the island, the poet from the island of Lesbos. That's yes, exactly. So, so you know, she kind of wrote extensively about love between women, and you know, obviously, poetry is not necessarily nonfiction, so you can't say categorically that this was her experience that she was writing about. However, I kind of have that in my mind, but also think that like we don't, you know, scrutinize male poets of the same era writing about women in the same way. Mm. So I think, okay, so perhaps, you know, she would write about this attraction to women. Um, and we don't know a whole lot about her other than, you know, what her poetry kind of gives us. But it's kind of in those later years where she was really written about um a lot in the kind of classical era. So Sappho lived long before that in the archaic era. So people in the classical era had a, like an f- obsession with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that could have been that they were threatened by her or they wanted to diminish her because she was a woman and women at that point were not seen to have much of an intellect or, you know, creative potential. They could have been threatened. Um, They also, you know, I think tried to obscure her a bit. So there's a lot about her. So some people say, you know, she wasn't at all attracted to women because she was, she had a man named Hercules. Mm. Um, Or another story says she sort of threw herself off a cliff um, because she was heartbroken Mm. by a man whose name, um, I'd have to check the pronunciation. Mm. It's Bown, I think, but whose name um, it isn't a well-known name from this period and this place. It only kind of appears in this particular story. And if you look at the translation of it, it kind of translates to the Greek word for penis. Mm. Um, and so that's when you sort of start thinking like, okay, Someone has written that Sappho threw herself off a cliff um, because she was heartbroken by a dick, Mm. you know. (laughs) Or maybe she was running from the dick. (laughs) Maybe she was running, exactly, running from. You sort of sit there and you're like, okay, we know that, you know, there were penis jokes all over the walls of Pompeii, things like that. So we know Mm. that, you know, they thought that, I don't know, Mm. this kind of humour was funny back then. So as soon as you start kind of looking, okay, what's this person who's writing this down? What Mm. is their interest in telling it Mm. in a certain way? You have to Mm. criticise it. Trolls. (laughs) Yeah, trolls. And then I guess like to a a lesser extent, you know, once you get through later, you sort of do think that like so often, you know, what is potentially same-sex love is written about as the classic roommate story um, or just ignored um, often on purpose because Mm. people were scared that talking about these things would kind of make them catch on. Mm. So there was a lot of silence around it. And I think that is something that has made it really, Mm. um, really difficult. But of course, once you go looking, um, you can find it everywhere. Uh, when I, I found this incredible website, you've probably come across it, but it's the um, gender diversity uh, in across every continent in the world. And it's like pretty much this Google map and you just click on it and it has all of these histories that pop up. 
one of the cool ones I found was this ancient, uh, this indigenous tribe in like deep Siberia who acknowledge seven different genders on top of male and female. Like in wow. Siberia, you know, like this deep in in the woods, and then, um, you know, there's a there's a tribe in Hawaii, indigenous community in Hawaii, who acknowledge a third gender, um, who embody both male and female qualities, but also are considered like lawmakers and holders of wisdom in the community so it's like you I don't know it's interesting to hear all of these things and it's like where did it go so wrong and when did it become you know so like we can't talk about that you know and and yeah I think like also more recently but Francis Bacon too like his art and him and the world he he painted the male figure which was controversial and he managed to kind of tiptoe around you know not getting cancelled from it <laughs> um but yeah it's what do you think that is like why have people been so scared of um gender diversity and sexuality in expression I mean it's really kind of uh, it's quite simple and lin- linear when you look at history. Firstly, because it's all to do with colonization, and colonization, of course, is an ongoing, um, you know, an ongoing practice. And you know, it's really systemic um, in our societies um, that you know, in colonized societies. And of course, I am talking, and in this book, I sort of talk specifically about European colonization. Um, but really what, what happened is you had, like you mentioned, Mahu, um, in Hawaii, um, the Babylon in, you know, what we now know as the Philippines, South America, we have the Muxes. There's just so many, um, variations on gender that have occurred in different indigenous peoples around the world. And what happens when the, um, colonization kind of began was that obviously there were, you know, in places like um, so-called Australia, there were genocides, um, which really um, eradicated people um, so that it made it difficult to kind of preserve that history. Um, And where there wasn't, you know, um, violent genocides, there was still a complete erasure of Indigenous cultures um, through missions um, and sending out kind of Catholic or Protestant missionaries. Um, And what they did was really indoctrinate Indigenous people. And when that happens, you know, lines of cultural transmission are severed. So it really removes Indigenous peoples from their rich cultures and history and kind of forces um, Christianity onto them. And that is really at that time what what was really wrapped up in this kind of gender binary. Um, so I think that is why it has become it's like so a level of control. Hey, because it's like, if we've got, if we've got a binary of you or this or that, you're right or wrong, you know, um, left or right. Like it's all these like, you know, things that are just like easy to control and to um, police, you know, and yeah, to keep, which is if you're if you're seeking to colonize and conquer and <laughs> control, then you know putting things, creating a very clear guidelines that means that you can control the masses makes sense, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think mm. there was because when you look at kind of 
early um, colonial periods Mm. where it was kind of men being sent out. Um, This is probably before the missionaries arrived. There was Mm. a lot of same-sex activity, um, Mm. particularly between between the men, you know, especially on, you know, cowboys and that kind of that kind of culture there was tons of it and I think Mm. what what really um became apparent was that say if we take the the British the British Empire they were rapidly making laws to deal with um homosexuality and just exporting them to the colonies around the world and that kind of continued to happen until you know 1885, we had the Labusha Amendment, which is the gross indecency um, law that Oscar Wilde was um, charged under. That was shipped out, you know, really like not too long ago. And so that's how they were kind of maintaining this control of their of their colonies and at the same time severing those lines of cultural transmission, um, which is why, you know, there, there can be so much stigma around gender um and gender diversity mm. because of what's been kind of entrenched by yeah organization mm. no it, it can be a little bit off topic but i i follow this instagram account called history photographed have you what do you follow it history photographs yeah it's no, like this um it's one. this account and it just every now and again it'll, it'll show a photograph from history sometimes it's modern sometimes it's you know and it's these incredible photos that have been captured and and there's this one, and it tells a story behind it. It's kind of like a little encyclopedia that you. Oh I God, always stop I and learn. It's so good. But one came up, it, or it's very dangerous. Like, don't click on it during the workday because you'll read something interesting. And then I personally go down like Google rabbit holes. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? I never knew this. But I learned about um, these wild children, wolf kids, I think they're called or something. Well, so they posted this picture. This, it was, a, I think it, some jungle, it might have been the Philippines, or some jungle, sorry to butcher this story, but to general gist because it's going to come back. But really, I think it must have been this time where, you know, a, pe- a family couldn't afford to, to, or, you know, didn't want a child. They would go and leave it out in, in the jungle. There's a ha- there's multiple stories of this now. These animal and this is what the Jungle Book is based off. A, yeah. a um this particular story was a bunch of a pack of wolves found this child like it must have been a newborn, raised it, and these hunters were out one day in the forest and they see this pack of wolves and they're like. What is that with the with the wolves? And it's this child, and it's walking on all fours. It ate with its teeth. It had sharpened teeth, um, and the wolves protected it and raised it. And so the hunters thought, "Oh, we need to go and pr- like get that child." And so they smoked the wolves out, killed them all, grab the child, and take it to an orphanage, and. There was another child that came in that was raised in the same way. Like, isn't so much about this? A nature, human, like nature at its core is loving and protective. Um, B. So this child never. I don't. I don't think it lived past twenty. It could never assimilate into society. It still ate on fours, and the one of the main reasons they reckon it it couldn't connect with community and society and humans, A, it would have been traumatised from seeing what it's considered its family dead. But because of language, 
So mm. it was ne- it never learnt language and could never communicate. And the reason I bring that back to is, and it makes me also think of how beautiful Pride, World Pride has been in Sydney this last month is, and this book and giving language to who we are and what we, you know, our story as queer people is because if you take someone's language and we see this with the Aboriginal culture in Australia, when you take someone's language, it is actually a life force that severs them from society and lessens their um, life expectancy. Absolutely. I think that's so, um, it's so true because I think when I, when I was getting to the um, sort of second half of that book, you see what's what happens when you do kind of allow language to flourish. So, you know, no one prior to kind of really the the 90s um, understood themselves as transgender the way that, you know, we understand the concept of transgender um, today. And that's so brilliant because once that language um, around what it means to be transgender, that then, you know, really liberated so many people and kind of kicked off the transgender rights mm-hmm. movement because there was now a language to talk about, you know, gender as separate to your sex. Um, yeah. And I just think every time we've had new language um, come come about, our rights and our kind of activism has just made huge jumps. I love that. That is that actually just clicked so many dots, missing pieces, things for me. Because, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you is that you know, as as the LGBTIQA plus you know acronym expands, and you know the different ways of identifying with sexuality and you know self expression and orientation keeps expanding. I think we we're seeing more and more people. And I think what I love about this book, it's like there was, I think in your press release, it was like, you know, um, somebody's come out or they're, you know, starting to say, and they're like, welcome to the club, let's catch you up. And I was like, that gave me goosebumps because it's like this cool, you know, yes, somewhere you've been able to pinpoint who you are and now like here's where you came from almost. It's like your family tree. Um, but what do you, what, I guess, like, I feel like maybe you've answered the question, but that, well, I guess for the people who might be going, what, what next, you know, how, how many more letters can you add to the, you know, to the acronym or, you know, what's the, you know, and I think speaking from the other side of the story of going, someone trying to understand gender diversity and orientation and, and self-expression <laughs> what was my question what it yeah like, yeah how did does, yeah when does the acronym kind of stop it's interesting because when you know it's it's always it's always a choice when you're writing about um these kind of issues what terminology you choose to use so you know I made a decision to use the acronym LGBTQ plus um just because there are so many variations around the world. So, um, yeah, in different places there are different variations that are kind of important. So it's whether or not, you know, in the U.S. there's often a 2S in there for two-spirit people. There are just um, in different languages. Obviously the acronym is different um, Mm. because the words that it represents are different. I think 
often I've used the words queer and trans, um, which mm. again, like the word queer is not without its kind of controversy. Mm. We were seeing um, a kind of a viral article in The Guardian about the word queer quite recently mm. um, about slurs and the reclaiming of them. So I've opted to use queer and trans as kind of umbrella terms um, because I think that they do at least now in, I'm going to, time check this March of 2023 Mm -hmm. they do feel the ones that feel the most expansive and I think Mm -hmm. that is an important like that's an important kind of recognition right now because the number of genders that people are identifying with is amazing Mm -hmm. there are a range of xenogenders which is something Mm. super new that people are talking about neo pronouns um and same with sexualities you know we are now seeing kind of different sexualities which we thought were like a single label kind of proliferate and break out into kind of umbrella terms so we now Mm. have like asexual or aero ace being an umbrella Mm. term for a whole bunch of um you know identities so in terms of what's next, I'm not sure at the moment. Mm. We're just seeing this rapid proliferation mm. and maybe at least where I'm sitting, I'm looking for consolidating words to talk mm. about, you know, a collective of us that defy, I guess, mm. society's cis-normativity mm. um, and heteronormativity, yeah. but that might change. No, and I think I, I'm circling back to the what I was trying to say before, which I think is like, yeah, I think it's that's the sign that it's like it's not that it's this new trend, you know, that or, or these, you know, like people just trying to be different and and create a new, you know, niche for themselves. It's that this was a, you know, a way of being and expressing that existed and and now that we're using finding language and we're uncovering and I I feel like maybe the way that you were talking then it's like archaeologically, you know, digging for, you know, the um what's the word uh fossils of evidence that were like oh, okay yes that's right you know and it's this kind of open door to like more helping people to give language and understanding to who they are i love yeah i love that kind of archaeological idea because that is exactly what it's like and i think it's important to remember that language just has incredible power because at the end of the um, 19th century, late 1800s, there was kind of the person that um, we might understand as the first homosexual man because his name was Karl Heinrich Ulrichs and he was the first person in Western um, history, European history, to have the idea that there was something about him that made him a certain way really mm. so up until that point sodomy of course was an act which was um illegal but it was kind of an act that anyone could succumb to if they just didn't have strength of character you know a bit like oh whoops i mm. had anal sex um mm. <laughs> and it was it was a crime it it's not that any people were particularly drawn towards you know mm having sex in a certain way, whereas he was the first person to go, hang on, I have something within me that makes me want 
to, you know, or feel attraction to men in this particular way. And so therefore it's natural. And if it's part of the my innate self, then it can't possibly be wrong. And so he was the first person, he wrote it in this pamphlet. And then all of a sudden these other people started writing to him. And that's when they sort of, he used the word earning, um, which is German, but then it was a Hungarian um, person who used kind of the word that translates to homosexual. So mm. basically that's when we started getting language for that. Mm. Boom, big leap. And then wow. it just keeps happening. Isn't that amazing? And also, yeah, I also gives you a whole new appreciation for writing <laughs> because the stories that it tells and the and the I mean I think I often thought this when I was writing a book as like you know I do a podcast and a, a blog and an Instagram and all those things but when you the nerves that I had writing a book was like I've been you know the, every house you go into I look at bookshelves and you know books get handed to you that have been written in the you know 1930s and they're still circulating and there's nerves of being like how permanent they feel but also how potent um they can be for this that's true I think Mm. it's yeah that's the benefit of something tangible you know (laughs) Mm, yeah hey so that's it takes me to our point around um tiktok because 2021, I feel like it was just yesterday, but it was two years ago now. Well, not really. When did you start? But you have, um, to my latest count, over 460,000 people following you on TikTok with 12.3 million views, no likes. I'm not really a TikToker. (laughs) You know, 70,000 people on Instagram. Tell us about that and, you know, getting started with that what do you think the kind of key to that success was and you know what what's that journey been like taking that to the world of TikTok okay amazing before I answer um my partner's just making a salad um can you hear that no okay cool all right oh good (laughs) no I'm just checking because it's a podcast fine so funny my I locked my partner in the room she's like oh my dad's gonna call I'm like get in the room she locked herself (laughs) she's used to it now um yeah so TikTok is kind of yeah so sorry what was your question which was yeah how's it been huge following it's been absolutely massive yeah where did it start how did it go was it instantaneous has it been a slog what are your tips give us a TikTok tutorial Okay, so uh, both. So it was 2021. TikTok was, I would say, still fairly new in Australia, you know. Um, There was, it was quite easy, I guess, then to grow a following because people were, there was more of a curiosity. Um, It was really quite instantaneous. We had some really early viral videos. Um, You know, we had like, it was just a couple of weeks before we had 10K followers mm-hmm. um, on TikTok. And that really grew very quickly um, to about 200K in just uh, three months. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, it was, it's was it been quite difficult, you know, to continue to grow because um, of a range of things. Just, you know, more people join a platform, um, you know, people are less inclined to kind of follow, like, they are maybe on Instagram and then also just um, some of those kind of view suppression things which, um, you know, you always hear about um, are difficult because we'll get people on there that are 
members of the alt right kind of reporting our content and things. And really? so then, yeah, so that 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 can like really hinder your growth. And for a while, it would really like play on my mental health. Um, I think in a, a negative way because I realized that my satisfaction in what we were doing was quite pinned to the views and this algorithm. Mm. And to be honest, that I still struggle with having an algorithm Mm. determine my worth as a creator. Um, But I think it has been more like it's been more often fun than Mm hard but it's definitely been both and I think sometimes you think you have the algorithm unlocked um Mm -hmm. but then TikTok will change it or I don't know you'll just have Mm -hmm. these breakout hits and often it comes down to I don't know there was a snow day in America and everyone stayed home and was on their phones Mm -hmm. things like that that you'll have these breakout kind of success videos and they'll just go viral and that feels amazing um especially because we get a lot of positive comments and the the community we have built um, really gets a lot out of the content. So that feels mm, brilliant. Um, but yeah. I would say like with platforms like TikTok and I'm going to say Reels as well, just because that mm. kind of came along a little bit later, um, those platforms are just so polarizing in that sometimes it's so much fun and you know your content is going viral and reaching so many people and you're getting like amazing comments um and it's being shared and you feel like you know it's worthwhile other times you know it's Mm. like tumbleweeds and Mm. you're pulling your hair out and you're just like why did I even spend four hours researching that (laughs) yeah I mean it's interesting. I just thought of this then because I look at your account and go like, you know, nearly 500,000 followers with millions of views or likes. And it's like, is I wonder whether it's almost, a de- it's infinity. You know, they've kind of set us up because it's like, well, what is enough? You know, like, you know, there, there's an infinite, like what, you know, what would be the amount where you're just like, you know, it's hard to grow. And I'm like, baby you've grown (laughs) like a hundred percent and like that's that's the curse because I always had this number I always thought oh my gosh imagine if we got to 100k followers I'm gonna say two days after 100k followers I was like Mm. it's not too it's not 200k or it's not 150k now you're sitting there being like oh my gosh we've got all these followers I'm like oh why is it not a million? And then, you know, you, it is endless. And yeah. that thing. Like, I mean, that's why they keep, that's why they, it's keep, if there's no end in sight, you can't finish the game, then you keep playing the game. A hundred percent. And I think that's why the book has been so mm. satisfying to put out in the world because it has a start and it has a finish and there's no, you know, there isn't an yeah. algorithm involved. It's, it's have you have you had your first um oh my god I read your book and I loved it? Um, I mean it's only been out a week or so, hey. It's only been out a week. You no. know, like my dad has read it. Yeah. And <laughs> peop- yeah, I've had like a few people say that they're really enjoying yeah. it um, or that they're almost finished and said yeah. that they love it, but I'm certainly like um, even signing it, I saw you were in the readings bookshop signing it and, you know, those things where you see it in people's hands and your name's printed on the front forever. 
That feels, yeah, that's yeah. amazing. I mean, that's brilliantly satisfying. I think, yeah, yeah I hope, um, yeah, I, all I can say is I hope people like it. I mean, you would know as well, like yeah. in terms of when you let something out into the world, you're kind of wanting the response, but at the same time kind of wanting to mm. stay in a bubble of having completed something that took a long time. Yeah. No, I think, um, yeah, and it's actually, you're right, it was a it was a good almost forced breakup with instant satisfaction of, of gratification around the like, the views and readership. It, um, you know, you don't know those things for months. And, but I think the things that gets me that it feels that tangible, you know, when somebody in, across the other side of the world tags you and says, I've seen, you know, I've got picked up a copy of your book and you're just like, how did you find it? <laughs> like, um, or people from my past have been right sending it to me too. So, but um, back to the TikTok conversation quickly it is in terms of just for those on our audience who might be um, weighing up TikTok, the Instagram stuff, like is there any things that top tips that have have um you think have been beneficial or you know advice giving for yourself in content creation on those platforms for those who might um yeah definitely so in terms of like you know um advice it would be like know your niche um would be the first thing so um don't try and do a bit of everything I think sometimes that sometimes people think okay well I need to have this kind of, uh, you might've had, you know, content pillars. I'm going to do this content. I'm going to do a bit of this. I'm going to do a bit of this. No, no. Like just find that niche that you want to be known for and just do that niche. Mm. Um, you know, on our channel, we do history lessons that go for one minute or so. As soon as we try and experiment with a different format, it doesn't work. Mm. Um, so particularly with TikTok, it's like find that niche and stick with it. Mm-hmm. And then just don't, um, in the early stages, don't overthink it in terms of trying to make a perfect video. It's more is more um, in terms of just like get these videos out, like don't make it perfect because you are not going to know what is going to find an audience necessarily. Mm-hmm. So just kind of if you have an idea, just get it up um, because it's a numbers game so often in terms of just having like an amount of content Mm. um, is really the way to kind of build an audience. So I think that's really unlike Instagram, particularly if you're a visual Instagram creator where maybe you do need to spend that time making that photo look amazing. TikTok is the opposite. Just whack that thing up. Um, Yeah. I feel like that's what Instagram's been pushing with reels. I did some work with Instagram last year and it was just like, just make reels, just make reels, you know, like even if it's a 10 second thing, you know, Um, but it's, yeah, that same thing. And I think, do like, I think it's moved from this kind of polished curated like studio setup to, you know, and I, I looked at yours and it's, you know, just somebody standing there in their room being like speaking to camera, being like, you know, reading yep. their script, but in a, in their own voice. Yeah, 100%. I think it's definitely about just getting things up and making it look natural at the same at the same time, you know, trying to do that. It's also like you want to make sure that your audio is, you know, decent quality um or it's not too echoey as well because mm. um 
that's the thing that I do notice does affect views. Um, Mm. So if we record something and it's in like a different space to a usual space and say it's Mm. like a bit echoey or something, people will be like, are you in a fish tank? (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) I would say, yeah, Mm. get the audio right. Mm. um, And the rest is like get it up um, Mm. as much as possible and then you're learning about your audience. So I don't worry too much about trends um or mm. anything like that or how long videos should be because when we're um if you kind of google or anything like that it'll say things like you should keep your tiktoks or reels to 15 seconds mm. as for our content any t- anywhere between you know 45 seconds to mm. a minute 05 is our sweet spot mm. yeah um, and we've tried and tested again and again and again and that's just how mm. it seems to be with us. So I, I would say that would be the other thing is just like, yeah, know your niche, get them up. Something's mm. going to work. Just do more of that. And mm. then um, you'll understand kind of what yeah. your audience wants. I love that. I think it's really smart because I think that people just go, oh, you know, I just made this thing and I put it on TikTok and I went viral. And it's like, it's nice to hear this strategy. And and like, you know, you are observing and, and watching and, and seeing and playing to an audience because at the end of the day, yeah, it's for the audience, you know? A hundred percent. I think those ideas are like, I think that might have been, I think that might be over now in terms of TikTok, that kind of mm whack up a video and then it just becoming surprise viral. I think Mm. there's just too many people on the platform now um, for that to happen. Obviously, if it's, um, you know, something that you're filming in in Mm. real life that's shocking or newsworthy, that can still go Mm. hyper viral. But I think the idea of just those random success stories, Mm. more often it's somebody coming at it with a bit of a strategy. Yeah. And also, do would you say like, you know, obviously jumping on the TikTok trend early, is there anything in your um, periphery that would, you know, what you see trending next or where do you think we're going with, you know, content creation? Um, I have no idea. <laughs> I think. AI. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of me is like, okay, we're in such a, we're in a world kind of that is filled with just rapidly and endlessly accelerating kind of micro trends. Maybe it will all blow up um, and we'll be back to just books again. And that would be nice, I think, in some ways. But I don't think that the platforms would ever allow that to happen. I think they plan ahead. Um, You'll get these new kind of things that emerge that seem interesting, like be real, and then, boom, the pl- the main players have kind of mm. taken on their version of it. So I think yeah. um, I really just think that these platforms will just get more sophisticated and, and maybe there'll be a couple of new breakthrough ones. But I'm certainly not like a tech like a tech mm. trend forecast yeah. by any means. <laughs> no, you're a history writer. Yeah, <laughs> I look to the past. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. Hey, and just to finish this off, what was the process like of, you know, you, maybe you're um, writing the book. You said it, it was two years, but, you know, what did that look like for you? Is it a, a daily practice? Have you got tips for people out there who might be looking to, to you know, either write a book or pitch it to a publisher? But what was your journey like? 
I think, um, so it was always my dream to write a book. And so I really had in my mind that I wanted to enjoy the process of it as much as possible. Um, because when it is happening, it is kind of frantic a bit. I think I had in my mind that I would be this like dark academia icon, just, you know, sitting with my books and writing. And in reality, it was more like, I was literally riding in the front seat of the car because I had pages due and um, not driving, I should say, Um, (laughs) the passenger seat, I think. So I don't really, I have these ideas of how I would like to be a non-chaotic person and they never go to plan. So for me, it was just like I do everything, which was just like frantic and Mm. pure chaos and, you know, a lot of kind of get the ideas down and write um like rewrite or edit later but I think one thing I do take time on is the structure of things and I really spent a lot of time early getting the the through line of the book or what was the theme that I wanted to tell I really didn't want it to read Mm. like a list of factoids or anything like that so I had a really really long spreadsheet Mm. that was horizontally long that was a timeline that went from like 8000 BCE to 2021 Mm. um and so I start I spent a lot of the early writing period just on that um timeline kind of putting in events and when people lived and kind of making connections and that was really really helpful and did you have um did you put a structure to um to the chapters I think I did the similar thing I was like I I had a big A3 piece of paper and I was like okay I mean mine was very step by step because it's how to start a side hustle but it was like you know you've got to do this 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 and this and and I played with that structure a little bit but did you you know as I developed my chapters to be like you know I'm going to teach it and then I'm going to give it activity and then there's some checkpoints and things but was that did you develop that or was that part of you know that unfolded in the writing process? I mean, I think early in the writing process, I realized that um, I wanted and that, well, I realized it was possible. So I was doing my research and I was researching and writing at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I realized it was actually possible to, yes, have it follow a linear timeline. Um, So it was, it's chronological ish, Mm -hmm. Um, but then also to give each kind of chapter a theme and a kind of focus on a, on one or two places. And that was really helpful because we had like the classical societies at the beginning. And then the second one was about religion. And then chapter three is about colonization and, you know, going up to kind of talking about different themes. There's one on activism, there's one on kind of partying and music. So I think once I realized that not only could I, make these chapters and ground them in a sense of time and a theme um but also through that lens of that theme um tell individual stories that was great because then I had a real focus yeah no that's cool I love that it's good to hear I think it's nice for other people to hear just for insights you never know what it's going to jog for somebody who's stuck on their writing process um question does RuPaul get a chapter no 
controversial. Yeah, (laughs) it's interesting. I don't watch much RuPaul. Mm. I am not, I think like obviously it's had a a massive impact on Mm. queer culture in a modern sense, but I guess it's history and really it would have come under really the internet because that is how drag has kind of evolved. And I sometimes am kind of often critical of how the hyper um, aestheticization of drag Mm. has kind of impacted us um, and which queens get certain opportunities. I think that it was an art form that for much of its history was about defying beauty standards. And sometimes I do feel a little critical that now um, it's it's become defined by um, beauty standards, again, mm. in terms of kind of whiteness, um, thinness, uh, mm. things like that. So I think mm. RuPaul doesn't. And RuPaul is an incredible person and activist. Mm. Um, but also I mean, it's a money-making, <laughs> yeah, and also is like every time I watch RuPaul's show, I'm like, this man and his empire is massive. I think going back to, yeah, watching a lot of que- early queers, it's like it's it's interesting to see. I love that point about where it is now and how it's not quite where it started, but I always feel so passion like I cry in that show because of like the people who've come from to give that I I love that and maybe this is controversial too in the because it's that argument between you know corporate dollars sponsoring pride event for a hot second to get their you know their purple tick and their thing but it's also like but then also these queer people who have come from you know being kicked out of homes and and things because of their drag or their their sexuality can have a amazing career because Rue is like yes let me give you my platform and give more of these and um that inspires me of 100% and I think like you know we have had a um like corporations and queer people have had a bit longer a history than I think we do speak about um mm. now and we have benefited and relied on those dollars and whether or not that's a positive or a negative thing I mean yeah. that's just capitalism but I think um yeah I, I do think that these mm. platforms that are afforded to people by you know the RuPaul's and those shows like better us than than mm. someone else you know yeah that yeah. is spotlighting and we need that yeah absolutely um well thank you so much for sharing I feel like we really went all all topics the whole whole timeline amazing thank you so much absolute pleasure congratulations on your book for those that were at home wanting to pick up a copy or find you and follow your work do you want to let us know where to find you on what platforms yes yeah, so at rainbow history class instagram and tiktok are the main ones and youtube actually oh nice and you can pick up rainbow history class um your guide through queer and trans history in a good bookshop. <laughs> That's right. Have you got any signings or launches or anything coming up? 
Yeah, so Sydney launch is on March 16th. Amazing. Next week, I believe. Hang on, or is it 17th? Let me just actually check that. Anyway, it's next week. <laughs> Amazing. We'll find it and and post it out. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Absolute thank pleasure. You. Oh, was there anything else? No, that's it. Thank no. you so much. Awesome. I look forward to getting stuck into this over the weekend and congratulations. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Great to meet you. Have a pleasure. You too.